What does it feel like to stand in someone else's shoes? To see the world truly from their perspective and to understand their point of view more deeply and fully? This is the question we asked ourselves that led to the creation of Applied Empathy. I'm Michael Ventura, the founder of Subrosa, a strategy and design practice that uses empathy as a tool to solve complex problems for leaders and the organizations they serve. This podcast is an ongoing project that explores questions of identity, perspective, self-awareness, and growth. It's intentionally unfussy about being pristine or perfect. You might hear a ringer go off in the background or a stutter step in a response, because that's what life is really like. It's imperfect. And if we take the time to see it and to understand it as such, we learn that the imperfections are actually quite perfect. This 10-part season was recorded to correspond to the reissue of my first book, Applied Empathy. In it, we will chat with leaders from all walks of life and learn how empathy plays a role in the work they do for their teams and for themselves. I hope it helps open your perspective and illuminates new ways of seeing the world. Scott Belsky is an entrepreneur, author, investor, and currently serves as Adobe's Chief Product Officer and Executive Vice President for the company's creative cloud business. Scott, welcome to Applied Empathy. Thanks for taking the time to chat. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So, you know, I was thinking about how to start this. You and I have known each other for over a decade at this point, and I was like going back over the history of our, of our time together. And the thing that kept coming up is you have a knack for tackling tricky projects and, and tricky subjects. Um, you know, your, your first book, Making Ideas Happen, took a look at how to put ideas into action, bring them into reality. It was, you know, it's a topic that everyone gets stuck in often is sort of how do you move this thing from idea to, to implementation. Your newest book, Messy Middle, looks at an equally challenging topic, in my opinion. Uh, it's the hard, unglamorous stuff that is taking a product to market and living in a state of continual improvement. What inspired you to write the new book? Well, I feel like all my all my projects are always inspired by some big sense of frustration. And uh, I mean, Behance was inspired by how disorganized the creative world was and being frustrated with that. And uh, and then the messy middle was really inspired by my frustration with how obsessed everyone is with starts and finishes. It just seems like every article we read, every story we hear, is about this incredibly you know, momentous start and the glamour of uh, taking a risk and everything associated with getting something started. And then the um, incredible, you know, uh, sound bites of the finish, whether it was a horrible finish or a wonderful finish, but we all love headlines talking about the ends of things. And, and of course, the middle is just this endless period of volatility, anonymity, anxiety, uncertainty. Um, and, uh, and it just, it doesn't feel like there's enough uh, discussion around just how to manage the ups and downs. So this is really a book about navigating volatility. Yeah. And the, the, um, you broke up a little bit on that last thing, but just to repeat it in case it doesn't come through in the, in the recording, it's, it's really kind of slogging through the volatility. Um, the, the thing that I think is interesting about that topic in particular is when you look at what is happening on the startup level, it's it's pretty clear that you know folks are fo- folks are living that day in and day out. But when you look at a larger organization, it becomes even more opaque because these organizations have been going for decades, and their middle is still happening, 
And, um, and it, it gets even more complicated when you've got these sub products inside a business. And I know that your uh, role at Adobe now is really looking across a, a litany of products. I don't know what the, the total count is at Adobe, but it's, I'm sure it's high for total products in the, in the suite. Um, what is, what is that like to sort of manage the different, um, the different paces of all of these products as they're kind of being developed and, and, uh, and evolved over time? Well, I think it's, um, the challenge is on multiple levels, right? I, I think some of these products are new and have modern teams with modern technical stacks and modern practices and, uh, and people who are running the products who are also real customers of the products. And then some of them have teams that have been around for a while and are really great at um, a, a technology stack that's kind of old at this point and is looking to modernize themselves and their practices. I also think that uh, the different teams are at different stages of understanding where our customers are um, and how they're changing. And it's very challenging for a company when you have customers who've been using your product for 30 years who just have their own way of doing things and don't want you to change a thing. And you have customers who've been using your product for 30 days and can't understand why it isn't modernized and doesn't feel like an iPhone. And, uh, and how do you navigate uh, two different sets of customers? It's, it's always a challenge. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's, it's also this interesting thing because Adobe has grown not just with developing its own products, but also through acquisition. So you kind of inherit customers at some point along the journey too and have to retrain them and help them understand what, what, what's different or what's evolving about something that they knew under a different banner. I mean, the, the Omniture acquisition that turned into Marketing yep. Cloud is a perfect example of that. Yeah, and, and Behance, you know, my company was acquired as well. And you know, we went through that to some extent as well. What I try to do is I try to just find kind of the shared territory of, 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 of mission and of conviction. You know, every company that you bring in to the fold was founded because they wanted to fix a problem. And if you can identify, you know, with each other's problems and see the connections between them. Um, the other challenge, I think, for someone you know, bringing a new company into a bigger company is to know how much you should compromise and change about yourself and the way that you do things versus what you should refuse to change and what you should hold on to at all costs. And that's one of the advice pieces of advice I always give entrepreneurs after they get acquired by a company is to identify, you know, what, what are they willing to change and what are they willing to, and what, and what should they just like put their foot in the ground and say, this is who we are. And if you change this, you're, you know, you're giving, you're, you're, you're sort of compromising the value of what you bought. Yeah, absolutely. It is. We, one of the things we talk about with our clients that when we sit down is what's sacrosanct, right? Like what, what is not touchable? And what's so interesting is that sometimes brands really have never thought about that. Like I was with a client a couple of weeks ago and we asked that question and the room went silent for like a good two, three minutes because they, they really hadn't contemplated like what is like untouchable for us. And it, it became this really rich conversation. It's a great piece of advice to give folks. Yeah. No, it uh, uh, it's, it's when you ask that question, of course, people have to really do an inventory of their values and, you know, what is their competitive advantage versus what are they, you know, just doing that everyone else is doing. It's a really important, smart question to ask. Yeah. 
So this leads into a, a topic that I think you you know well, which is uh, the idea of not just keeping up momentum as you're going through these sort of middles that that you've mentioned, but really the your will, right? Your will to to stand by your conviction, to keep going, to push through, um, which you know at times might seem just like endless product releases, and I'm sure it's super grueling, and, and you know it firsthand in the creation of Behance, and I'd love to know. What were some of the things you learned along the way in the building of Behance before the acquisition that really helped inform the lessons in the book? Well, the you know the book really actually captures a bunch of these just different things I wrote to myself during Behance and, and experiences afterwards because I didn't want to forget these things. Um, and you know there was like momentary realizations or thoughts that I was just like, oh, you know, I hope I don't forget that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're now looking back at the journey. Behance was five years of basically bootstrapping, two years as a venture-backed business, and and um, many near-death experiences. <laughs> also, where you know, as you remember, Michael, being an advisor for us in the very beginning, like it just you know, I wasn't sure this was even going to be a real business. It may have been a lifestyle business. It was just a very uncertain um, roller coaster. And uh, I do look back and think that one of the most important things was just that we stuck together long enough to figure it out. And, um, and I actually look around Silicon Valley today where everyone, you know, flees companies after one year, two years, three years and joins whatever has a buzzworthy headline. Um, and, uh, no one ever feels like they're making as much progress as those companies that are glorified in the press. And yet maybe the competitive advantage is sticking together long enough to figure it out both as a startup, as well as, doing something remarkable within a big company. Because when you do that, you just start to understand your teammates um, and their tendencies, and you can kind of read each other's minds, and you start to develop a sixth sense for your business and the decisions you should make. And you actually have an opportunity to learn from your mistakes and then apply those lessons in things in future years. And I just, it's fascinating how we don't think that way. You know, everyone's always kind of moving on to the next thing. But the compounding interest, you know, of sticking together as a team is, is, is just mind blowing. So I think that's one of the things that I learned. And of course, what's beneath that is a culture that makes people want to stay. It also has a lot of merchandising and marketing tricks required for leaders to keep their teams engaged long enough to figure it out. And, um, and that's an interesting, you know, whole space, right? I mean, we talk about with customers about how to market their products to customers, but we don't talk about how to market and merchandise the progress we're making within our own teams to our own teams. And in fact, there's a lot of research to suggest that progress begets progress, that people, when they feel like they're making progress, are motivated to continue to make progress, which is a bit of a you know, chicken and egg scenario that you have to think about creatively. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a huge point. I, I often think about this myself and I, I refer to it because I can't help myself with sports analogies sometimes, even though I'm not like a sports guy, but like for some reason I grew up playing sports enough that they're in my head somewhere in my subconscious. But I always think about like, what's it going to take to get us to the no look pass kind of level of a relationship, right? Like, you know, and that's, and that's exactly what you're saying. And it's, it's so often overlooked as, as leaders because, you know, the list of things to do gets longer every day. And, uh, it's so easy to um, not pay attention to the things that aren't squeaky wheels. And I have a list on my desk uh, 
pretty much running at all times. That's just a, a list of things that aren't squeaky wheels that I need to remember to pay attention to because otherwise, you know, everything that's that's clamoring for my attention is going to get it, and I'm going to overlook those those important things that actually make the business and its culture more meaningful. No, a hundred percent, and I think that's a great like tactic to have. Um, I'll tell you, like one other thing that I think is very relevant, Michael, to your work and your in your latest book um, that I've you know, thought about and maybe learned the hard way a few times during Behance and some other projects um, is just that you know we're so motivated oftentimes by our passion for the problem we want to solve or the solution we envision, as opposed to our empathy with the customer suffering the problem. Mm. When I look around especially in Silicon Valley and all these startups that pursue a, uh, a problem, you know, for two years and then under wonder why their solution is 30 degrees off of where the customer is. And, you know, the company ends up shutting down. I, I think it's really because we don't have that tendency to just go shoulder to shoulder and kind of suffer with the customer repeatedly uh, on a sustained basis in a non-scalable way. You know, that's the other tricky part is I see in a big company like Adobe, we think that a few year, a few, a few hours, you know, even once a month with a customer is like a, is not a good use of time. When in fact, it may be our best use of time. But when you have more and more customers, you start to believe that that's not a scalable tactic. Um, and I don't, you know, maybe I don't know if empathy can be achieved at scale, which is actually one question I wanted to ask you. I, I haven't found any shortcut other than, you know, just rolling up your sleeves and really trying to understand why the customer is suffering. Yeah, it's it's true. And it is one of those things that nothing beats the the hand-to-hand conversations of a company and consumers sitting side by side and having and having this dialogue. The only way that we've seen it scale a little beyond that, and of course you can do your surveys and you can do those types of things that are, you know, but the, you're only going to get what, um, what uh, you know, the top tip of the iceberg, so to speak. You're not really going to unearth the deeper, the deeper work. One of the things that we have been successful doing with a couple companies is actually building uh, customer advisory boards that are uh, regularized and embedded inside the organization. And so it's not a let's go out and talk to customers again. It is a, we know like once a month or once every two weeks or whatever it is, we're going to sit around the table with a diverse set of customers and we're going to just be able to ask questions and they're going to be able to give us feedback and we may not be able to fix everything, but it habitualizes it. And so it doesn't scale it in numbers, but it scales it in impact, I think, because it starts to become part of the reliable cadence of the business. I love that. That's such a great idea. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about too, and it's a great segue into, into the Adobe work that you've just mentioned is your work has always, I think, really lived between the worlds of design and product, right. And, and thinking about how those worlds collide and building great products for design community, but also now more broadly at Adobe for marketers and, and filmmakers and all of these other folks, creators in many ways. Um, Behance was a great example of it as well. Now there at Adobe, I mean, there really is no other company I can think of that sits more squarely at the center of those two worlds. What are some of the insights you've picked up as, after your time there so far about creating cohesion between those two communities? Because rarely do they interact on a regular basis, and uh, at, at least in some organizations. And I'm curious, like, what, what makes design and product click together at Adobe? Yeah, and when you say the two, I mean design and product or design and marketing. Like you're talking about design in the product side. 
Uh, yeah, well, and, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's, what I think is interesting is that I, I think it's always been true, but now people are awakening to the, to the, um, to the implications of the fact that a product is only as successful as the customer's experience of it. Right. And I think it's very humbling for technology companies who always felt like they were winning based on the technology that they were delivering when in fact they're really winning or losing based on the customer's experience of the technology, which really means that designers at the end of the day are the, are the, you know, are the final mile, right. Of the, of the product process, but actually determine the first mile of the customer's experience of the product and can actually solve a lot of the big problems that were formerly solved by technologists. You know, for example, when you look at a product, I mean, I remember when Pinterest first launched and then started getting all this traction and the site was slow because the tech stack was not made to keep up with the, the traction it was getting. And so they actually solved it for a period of time just with a design change as opposed to a real hard engineering change, which is they made the pins load up a color before they loaded up the actual image, which gave the customer the perception that it was faster. You know, even though it was more of a design solution. Mm. And it's, uh, it was one of those moments for me where it awakened me to the power of design, you know, in a, in a, in a product. And, uh, and just how if you have designers at the table, now Pinterest happens to have a co-founder who's a designer. And as you know, my co-founder, also a designer at Behance. I, I feel like it just brings design in at a different level from every, from every problem you're solving, as opposed to just oh, what's the design? And then, okay, go back to your, you know, back, go back to your room and, and design what's next. It's, uh, it's just an entirely new way of, of approaching a business. I remember our, our business plans for Behance were always designed. It was, it was made to understand visually as opposed to being a Microsoft Word document. Um, so at, at Adobe, um, it's what's, what, what's really cool is, and this, the meta thing is that we're actually creating for ourselves. You know, a lot of the designers, if they're sufficiently empowered throughout the product organization, you know, they can really be the customer in the room, you know, and talk about empathy. I mean, what better way than to actually, you know, have your, have your customer be a key part of the product experience. Um, and, and, and the last thing I would just say is design was not just a solution to design problems, but also a solution to all business problems. And I was saying similarly at, um, at Behance, my co-founder you know, was also uh, a designer, and I think that played a huge role in us thinking about every problem we had to solve from both a design perspective as well as engineering or business or whatever other field that problem fell into. Um, right. And Matthias, yeah, was, yeah. he was such an interesting uh, uh, a partner for you in, in, in my exposure because I the, the productive tension that and, and I mean that with all positive terms right right like that, that I think the two of you had was yeah. so emblematic and so early stage for what I think we see now as sort of the norm in the the startup world where you have these these two uh different skill sets but aligned values and vision and the the most successful organizations often have those people at the table who it might be two, it might be three, it might be four, whatever it is. And whether it's co-founders or early hires who 
you know, you need that productive tension. You need that push pull because if everyone is just singing from the same hymn book, it doesn't make good things great things. And so one of the things I've seen in organizations, you know, sitting at the at the table with you guys early days, but also even in, in the large orgs that we work with now, it's a lot of uh, desire for cognitive diversity because it's it's one of those things that when you do get that different perspective at the table, it, it pushes everyone to really think through things more well-roundedly. I completely agree. And Matthias and I, my goodness, we would butt heads on so many different decisions, but we also never made a decision without sharing conviction. And we also felt at times like the company was speaking to us because we would really debate something out. And then we would land on something that we felt really passionate about. And it was, uh, you know, it was, it was just a really cool chemistry and, you know, part of my life that I kind of miss, you know, it was just such a great period of time um, for us to go through that. In terms of diversity, um, I've always believed that innovation happens at the edge of reason in the sense that if you and I are very different and we come from different experiences and, you know, we're going to have different, different views on a problem and different attempts or approaches to a solution. At first, what you say we should do might feel unreasonable to me because I don't see things the way you do. And if I have a lot of respect for you, then I'll be socialized or I'm open to being socialized to why you see it that way. And as that happens, I might be like, oh, wait, that was something I never thought of that maybe we should do. Likewise, something it's probably something that no one else thought of, right? Which in, is in essence what innovation means. And so if you stack the deck by having people that are really different around you, you're more likely to find these things at the edge of reason that will eventually become the center. And, uh, you know, and then you'll win as a result. Yeah, well said. So... This is a, a, a thing I've been thinking about just because it, decades are interesting mile markers. Sub Rosa just turned 10 uh, this past year. And, you know, we've been thinking about, okay, what's the, what's the next decade? And it doesn't mean that we don't think every year, you know, what's the next year? What's the next five years? What's the next 10 years? But 10 years is a nice kind of, you know, milestone-y kind of moment. And, uh, and you and I are the same age. We're, we're both uh, 39 this year. And I'm thinking about also as, as we head into this next decade of our lives and knowing the work that you've done and the, the twists and turns you've taken from entrepreneurship to acquisition, authorship, investing, and now a leadership role at Adobe, are there things that are on your bucket list or your, or your, or your uh, horizon that you're saying, this is, really, this is really a thing I want to dig into for the, for the years ahead? I sure hope so. I, mean, <laughs> I feel like um, you know, to be done is to die, to quote uh, Umberto Eco, the Italian poet or whoever he was. <laughs> I have always subscribed to that idea. And, uh, and I think, um, I, you know, I, I always am wondering, you know, do I have another idea, you know, that I want to dedicate a portion of my life to? Um, is there another type of, you know, level of leadership role that I'm excited to take at a company? Uh, is there some, you know, set of lessons and challenges I just have not encountered in my life yet that will just enrich me? Um, I also want to, you know, spend more, I have kids now. And I, I get so much from the time with them. I imagine traveling the world someday with my family and I have a million dreams. And it's just like, gosh, you know, uh, it just, I want to, you know, hopefully I get to live long enough to do half of them. Um, <laughs> so it's, yeah. Uh, 
But, you know, here's what I have also learned through this volatility in my own career is that I don't feel happy unless I feel fully utilized. Mm. There was a time when I figured, oh, I should take some time off. And, uh, and why do I have to work so hard? And, um, and should I be not doing so many things at once? I actually found myself, you know, getting a little depressed, like listening to a lot more Johnny Cash music than I should. <laughs> and so I, um, you know, I have found that to be happy is to be fully utilized for me, both professionally and personally, by the way. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, it's a really well put way of saying that because I, I feel similarly the, you know, the, the different things I do can look schizophrenic at a tactical level. But when, when you pull up and you look at the, the way I spend my time, I, I often find solace in the fact that actually I kind of just do one job, right? I, I kind of am, am good at spotting the block and helping people figure out a way to work through the block. And whether I do that in a litany of different ways, um, it, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's kind of the same job. And it makes, my, it makes me feel like a sense of purpose is pretty, is pretty clear and uh, and helps me choose wisely. Because I think the other thing that was in what you just said is there are going to be things that present themselves to you. And if you don't have a good filter, you, you're going to flail about kind of chasing the next thing. And I think you've always, you've had a great through line because, you, because you're really clear on who you are and what value you want to add to something. And I think it's, you know, it rings true when you look at the, the arc of your career thus far. This is the last question that I, I want to add. Um, it's, it's one we're asking everybody at the close of these. It's a pretty simple question, but it can go in a million different directions. What do you want to understand better? Well, I think I, think I want to understand... Um, well, I'll answer the question you know, professionally uh, and personally. Uh, on the professional side, you know, I, um, I, I, I just know in my gut that there is a psychological layer, of course, around everything, right? Human behavior is, uh, is all about psychology. And at the end of the day, product, building product experiences, building brands, you know, everything comes down to the very complicated set of reactions we have to what we encounter in our lives and whether they compel us, the things we see, compel us to take action or to flee, you know? And so I, I want to, generally speaking, just better understand psychology. Um, and uh, I just am fascinated by it. I've never taken formal classes. I mean, the closest I got was marrying a psychologist. Uh, <laughs> Which is pretty close. <laughs> yeah, it was a strategy, I guess. But I, I just love psychology, and I find it so intertwined with design and product and, uh, and everything else you know, that, I, that I do professionally. And um, you know, then personally, I think I want to better understand relationships. I think relationships are, it's the ultimate thing we take for granted and feel, you know, that they happen automatically when, of course, it's the opposite. And I, I would love to better understand how do relationships evolve? You know, where do you need to invest in relationships to, uh, where is the disproportionate return, so to speak? You know, mm -hmm. and what are the small things you can do to make a big difference? Um, you know, that's all. That's a that's a uh, you know a forever pursuit. I'm sure, but it's something that I want to better understand. Beautiful, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, Scott. This has been great. I always appreciate our chats. I feel like I learn something every time we talk. And uh, yeah, um, Scott's book, uh, The Messy Middle, is out now. And again, thanks, buddy. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. Of course, talk to you soon.